Hey fellow bad patienters, it's Laura here. Just wanted to let you know that there was a slight audio issue on Robin's end and she is the worst bad patient. Uh, but this is episode 33. Enjoy! Bad Patient, Malpractice Makes Perfect. I'm Robin Donovan. And I'm Laura Beers. And we are two non-medical, non-experts sifting through this week's health news. This week's words are childbirth, post-mortem, drug resistance, and cancer pill. Oh shit, Laura, I read it as postpartum. Nope, you're right, it's postpartum. Oh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> those are actually easy words to confuse. You know what other words are easy to confuse in English? Chicken and kitchen for, like, non-native English speakers. And if you think about it, in this, like, postmortem and postpartum, when you think about it, are, like, really hard, like, really easy to confuse. And so are chicken and kitchen. They're, like, the, the same word, just, like, a syllable moved or something. Yeah. Yeah. I like stuff like that that you wouldn't have thought of, but then when you actually, you're like, oh... Yeah, those are like the same sounds, just in a slightly different order. Yeah. It sounds like some kind of auditory dyslexia or something. Maybe. So, Laura, we... No, I'm not ready, because we were supposed to answer a question about essential oils this week, but I got stuck in traffic on my way home, and I did not get to do any research. So I think we should postpone the, the question for next week, but I wanted to just acknowledge that it is coming and that we will be looking at whether essential oils have actual medical and therapeutic value or like have some evidence behind their therapeutic value or if it's all just snake oil. That's an excellent question and I will be able to give you a first-hand antidote uh, starting next week, because tomorrow, uh, I am going to go be a, a lady and get a, my first ever massage. You do realize that, like, that will not necessarily involve essential oils? It absolutely does, because I have opted in for the $10 extra for Ooh. choosing the essential oils that will be oh. available. I have what? my choice of a citrus smell, uh, eucalyptus, and lavender. And which, what are you going to get? One is energy, energizing. Mm -hmm. One is something else. And the other one is calming. Okay. I don't know. I think lavender would be calming. Eucalyptus, I think, might be like, I don't know. Someone put it, my nose was stuffed up after a massage once. And someone, like, put a cotton ball with eucalyptus under my nose. And that did fix the problem, but was also like, whoa, you know? I don't know. But I just wanted to let you know I'll be able to report. Mm. That's that's truly why we're postponing this this very important. <laughs> yes. Wait, so what are you, what's up with you getting a massage? Not that you shouldn't, but just that it's not something I would associate with Laura kind. Uh my my husband uh booked me a massage because my back has and shoulders and neck have been bothering me and oh. apparently that's a thing people do. That is a thing people do. Do you feel like it's stress-related? Oh, it's 100% stress-related. 
Yeah. You know what else would help you with stress is if you cuddled your puppy for a while. Have we mentioned Absolutely. that you have a puppy? I think we have. I have a puppy, and Charlie is adorable and amazing. I have another yeah. update. Ebola yeah. has been uh, diagnosed in a, a city, a port city in the Congo, and so um, health um, health officials are doing their best to um, give 4,000 vaccines to, including to medical workers and training people how to uh, deal with the bodies uh, the proper burial mm. procedures. Okay. So Ebola not not knocked out yet, despite having a vaccine. And I think that there's um, some mistrust of the vaccines in parts of Africa based on actual, like, essentially medical malpractice, right? Or sometimes other beliefs that make it more difficult to convince people there to receive injections of a, of a vaccine, or I suppose it could be through another form, than people elsewhere. Have you heard that? Oh, absolutely, because we definitely defo experimented on the people of Africa. Oh, like yeah, I mean, with hardcore. With the poor and people of color. Yeah. Defo, defo did that. Oops, our bad. Yeah. Um, also, trouble with this particular vaccine is that it's IV, um, and that Ooh. requires a certain level of uh, training and skill, Yeah, as well as monitoring, which makes it more challenging. Yay! Uh, all right, you ready for our first feel-good yeah. news story? These are all very depressing. I'm just going to warn you. <laughs> all right, I'm going to try to stick with it. All right, so our first article comes from the National Public Radio, and it's for every woman who dies in childbirth in the United's in the U.S., seventy more come close. So oh, this God. is not just looking at um, those. Mothers who pass away during child's birth, but also the um, those who come close to it, and sometimes directly related to childbirth, and then looking within the first year of giving birth. So part of it seems like the, at least the anecdotal stories that are given seems a little bit like um, new mothers aren't trusted uh, trusted sources of. Uh, Concern, you know, that they're in pain or that there's blood, um, right. and that medical professions professionals don't always uh, believe believe them mm -hmm. that there's an issue. Um, but it's looking at a couple of women who had extreme um, um, issues, extreme issues after after childbirth, and were hospitalized. One woman was in a coma for a month. Um, and the oh other God. one lost half of the blood in her body. Yeah, you know, so. I was looking at something recently talking about um, actually PTSD and and childbirth, and that like because it can be something that ends up feeling like life and death, that some people actually unfortunately come through that experience with like significant mental harm, you know, whether through medical mismanagement or not, just because it's it's so high stress, and that may be kind of sad. Not as sad as the fact that the U.S. has the highest maternal death rate among developed countries, according to modern healthcare and, I don't know, everyone. But, like, ugh, just, I know we've talked about this before, 
And I feel like there are people that, that almost like are in disbelief, but, um, I, this, I, I don't even know how we explain it. You know, like part of me wants to say, well, we've focused so much on neonatal health or is that the right? Like we've focused so much on the health of premature infants that some, for some reason we just cannot shift the focus to include the mothers or we feel like as soon as they give birth, they're done or something. I just, we have the information, right? We have the maternal mortality rates. We know the causes of pregnancy related deaths in the United States. I don't understand why we can't do better. Laura, would you like to know the top five causes of pregnancy related mortality here in our country? Yeah. Heart disease, non cardiovascular disease, which kind of seems like uh, we covered everything. Um, infection or sepsis, hemorrhage, and cardiomyopathy, which is a disease of the heart muscle, I believe. And then also after that is pulmonary embolism, which I would be like a blood clot, so a thrombotic pulmonary embolism. I'm not sure exactly what that means. <sighs> but it's it's just freaking shocking, man. It's just, I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't know what we have to do to make people think that it's an issue. I feel like people don't. Like, this article I'm looking at, it's from 2015. The U.S. was ranked 33rd among 179 countries on the health and well-being of women and children. And, like, how many developed countries are there? You know? So, it's just, it should be a national embarrassment, and I'm embarrassed that it's not more of an embarrassment. Anyway. Yes. Story. And it, maternal mortality is rising in our country as it declines in the UK, in Portugal, in Germany, in France, in Canada, in the Netherlands, in Spain. Like, in, seriously, every other developed country. Like, why is ours going up? So, um, and NPR and ProPublica actually did, like, a six-month, like, look into this. And so I would really recommend that. There, I think their piece is... Um, U.S. has the worst rate of maternal deaths in the developed world. Laura, am I going too far down this tangent, or should I just keep going? No, you're good. Okay. So I just pulled up a few articles really quickly. This is not a difficult Google search. If you don't believe us, just look it up on your own. We're begging you. It's so, so important. But um, like I said, only this joint kind of, it's not a study, but it's an investigation, I would say. So ProPublica is a nonprofit investigative journalism arm that does some really amazing work, especially in healthcare. You can check out their stuff on like, um, they did one on nurse complaints and I think in California and them not being followed up on, they've, they've done things on sunshine rules. They've published huge databases where you can search your doctor. So they and NPR did this six month investigation finding among other things, only in the U.S. has the rate of women who die during childbirth or pregnancy-related complications been rising compared to other developed nations. Um, they said there's this there's this weird mix mishmash of hospital protocols for dealing with um, potentially fatal complications, which allows for more error. Um, that hospitals, including those with a NICU, which is a neonatal intensive care unit for for babies, can be at for reasons we don't know, unprepared for maternal emergencies. So they're like ready to go for the baby. They are not ready to go always for the mom. They pointed to federal and state funding, which is um, showing only 6% of block grants for maternal and child health actually go to the health of mothers. So there's all this money 
being allocated to, quote, maternal and child health, but most of that is going to the child. Now, there's nothing wrong with funding health care for kids and babies, but the point is that we may be at a point of neglect for the mothers. And then um, the last thing they cited was that in our country, in the U.S., some physicians who are um, entering maternal fetal medicine are able to complete their training somehow without ever spending time in a labor delivery unit. So those were factors that they believed were were related. And I am appalled, as per usual, on this topic. Yeah. I think, I think that's excellent points, Robin. Well, I mean, to be fair, I'm just sharing what other people have found. I just think that it's one of these things, you know? Like, I get all angsty about there being heavy metals in protein powders, and I want people to care about that. I want people to know about that. But that is like on a scale of 1 to 100 compared to this, that is a 5, and this is a 99. Because this is so critical. It's it's so fundamental to who we are, how we care for women. I mean, this is women birthing the next generation of people in our, in our country. I don't... Yeah, I think that's a good segue for our next article. Um, our next article is from Slate, and it's, she asked for help for post partum depression and the nurse called the cops oh so this is talking about uh one of the very common uh complications or side effects of um new new moms is the postpartum uh depression but our mental health um networks are so underfunded and so badly um, so bad in this in this country that this woman went to her OBGYN to uh, four months after um, her baby was born, which was her first routine postpartum checkup. It says later in the article is because the doctor kept rescheduling for her, which is super late. Um, but she s- stated that she um, you know had a very strong. Um, support system at home and um was uh you know wasn't um do threatening to hurt herself or her baby but she was having these um violent thoughts and she needed help she needed medication or therapy and the nurse uh proceeded to not uh call a doctor or to call, you know, a, a therapist or anything that would be qualified instead called the cops on her. And she was, um, escorted to the emergency room and was held essentially for 10 hours while she did not speak to a doctor. She was spoke to mm. a social worker. And then at midnight, she was allowed to go. She was permitted to keep her baby with her during that time. Um, and she had to drive herself to the emergency room with the police following her because she had her baby <laughs> with her. <laughs> they didn't and, have a car seat in the police car. Yeah. So, um, so it's just, it's just like, even when people are doing the right thing and asking for help, our system isn't designed to help, to help in a positive way. Um, yeah. She essentially was given a bunch of Xerox copies of and a phone number. Um, 
I'm like, that's yeah. not, that's not what she was seeking. That's not what she needed. Um, and like yeah. this OBGYN's office wasn't connected with a psychiatrist in any way, even though it's a highly common side effect of, of it that a lot of women go through. And so women are choosing to suffer in silence rather than risking losing their children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think to some extent, this headline's a little misleading. Like the nurse called the cops. I mean, it is having police escort someone to the emergency room for a psychiatric emergency in and of itself. While not a great system, because I would argue that the police are not often highly, they're, I think, often trained, but not highly trained and in, in sensitive. No, or she, wasn't, she wasn't given yeah. a psych evaluation. She didn't yeah. see a doctor. Right. So, so no, the police were waiting there and yeah. they were there to, they were there to take her to. Yeah. It's like for a an evaluation. Jerk, it was a knee jerk reaction when the, the medical professional in what is it? Her obstetrician's office should mm-hmm. be more than capable of providing like a basic evaluation to figure out if this is an emergency or not. It feels to me like they just, for some reason they kind of went from zero to 10 about it. And it's, it's strange because she says she specifically told them she was not worried about harming herself or others and that there were people at home who could help her. So I don't know. I mean, I'm also kind of like confused about this thing about the social worker. Like, did they not talk to her at all? Like, did they not? But I think this is very often exactly how it goes. I mean... Because it's just a liability issue. It's not a medical care issue. Like, for some reason, the 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 healthcare provider she spoke to overreacted, but didn't, but still failed to provide basic medical care. And it sounds like the people in the emergency room also failed to really provide like a basic screening, a basic like counseling, a basic assessment of how she's doing. And instead, they turned it into this like, what would you call this? Like, criminal social issue that you know obviously it did not have to be but it's but i think it's because of the liability and i am not excusing the people involved here but it's like they just don't want to deal with it but i think if you don't want to deal with postpartum depression get out of the obstetrics world i mean it's what are they saying in the article it's one of the most common complications after birth is depression so if you, if the only thing you can do is send someone to an emergency room that's ridiculous. Yeah, there needs to be a step in between, Defo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And look at this. I like this thing they're talking about um, in Britain. The National Health Service now offers free unlimited talk therapy for women, for postpartum women and pregnant women. It's just, it's so, it's so simple. And as the article points out, the cost of an emergency department visit versus a few psychotherapy visits is very, is very cheap. So, yeah, I, there has to be a safe way to discuss depression in a doctor's office. There has to be an expectation of what's going to happen if you do that. And the expectation should not be that they immediately call the police. But do you see the avoidance in this, though, that they didn't, they didn't talk to her about what they were going to do? They just did it, you know? Yeah. It's not cool, Laura. It's not cool. Not cool at all. Okay. Are you ready for our next article? 
Yeah, and you were right. These these are like heavy topics. So our next article comes from Newsweek, and it's antifungal drug resistance as serious as antibiotic apocalypse warns scientists. Yay! <laughs> Yay! I, say, I try to. I try to say it happy and peppy. So <laughs> we've talked about uh, anti-biotics uh, um, being drug resistance. And now the scientists have looked at it antifungal and are realizing the same thing is happening there. Yay! Mm. Oh, hey. Then they're calling it underrecognized and underappreciated. The looming yeah. crisis is comp- is comparable to the so-called antibiotic apocalypse. Okay, I don't think I have ever heard the phrase. They're using that phrase as if it's normal. I mean, have you ever heard that? No, but I feel like you should Google it and tell me how many hits come up. 441,000, which is very low. I feel like it's... And a- that's not... 441,000, and that's not even in quotes. 66,000 in quotes. So, I guess this is a phrase that has been used, but also some people are using it in the as post-antibiotic apocalypse, which I am assuming means a day when no antibiotic works, or there's certain bacteria that for which no antibiotics are effective. Which indeed is scary, but... I don't yeah. know if I appreciate the um, the language here, just the awfulizing or the, the like like hyperbolic kind of language around it. I mean, I get that they're trying to raise our concern, but yeah. Well, this is somebody's ninety nine, well, Robin. They're trying to make it yep. seem super important. This is All somebody's right. ninety nine. Right. So. All right. You might think it's a is five, it? yeah. But this is somebody's. I don't. True. I don't know if it's the writers, or if it's the scientists, but or if they're just trying to get clicks. <laughs> but they're trying to warn us that we are doing stuff to our food, and uh, for like you know yeast infections and mold resistance um, that can infect both humans and livestock, and it can affect the food supply that mm. way with the. Um, so how does it? How does this work exactly? Um, with crops. Like, I'm not sure. I don't think that fungal infections are on my radar, to be honest. So you know what? Maybe this 99 person has a point because I'm part of the problem, right? If this is really a big deal. Yeah, I feel like it's probably more of a, an issue if you if you have. I don't know, like, whenever you, whenever you see, like, a commercial, there's, there's always that one, like, drug commercials that said, do not use if you have a fungal infection or have traveled recently where fungal infections are, are common. Like, that's like a side effect warning or whatever. I don't know for what drug, but I, it defo exists. And I always, I always wonder, what are fungal, inf- what are fungal places that, what, like, is that like, <laughs> Whoa, Louisiana just, or like Florida, like swampy places, bus. you know? Yeah. Well, they have like yeah, the swamps, sure. you know? I mean, I, I just don't feel like fungal infections are going to be super, super popular <laughs> yeah. in Arizona, know. you know? Or is that like, or is it like a 
a Wisconsin thing, you know? Like, is it a Maine yeah. thing, you know? Like, is it a, is it like a cold weather thing? Like, I don't really know. I'm not really sure, but I just feel like deserts aren't one of them. And in my head, you know, Arizona is, like, is, I, is hot. Oh. Never been. I think I was so. in the Phoenix airport recently and it looked lovely out the window. Um, <laughs> I know it doesn't. Doesn't count. My take Robin. on fungal stuff or my like first impression is I think of fungal stuff in terms of like minor skin issues or like athlete's foot or you know, like things people pick up at the pool. But this article seems to be warning us about crop-related and agricultural problems that could be anti-fungal resistant and therefore, like, they could they could cause huge losses in crop yields around the world. And so I could see, like, that being definitely a problem. Yeah. Also, yeast infections. What I, what I know less about and would be curious to know more is this mortality rate, like the last paragraph here says pointing to the fact that some fungal infections had mortality rates of over 50%. Professor Gordon Brown, director of (laughs) told BBC News these disturbing trends suggest that even our limited ability to treat these diseases is being severely compromised. So there must be a set of more serious fungal stuff than what I'm thinking of, right? I like yes. this. You know, I think the theme for today is, like, issues that we don't care enough about that we should care more about. I'm willing to care more about this. Yeah. Yeah. That's an excellent point. And that is an excellent segue to our next article. It's from the Boston Globe. And it's, after outcry, drug makers decide nice. not to triple the price of cancer pill. And it's people who gave a shit the like cause it. changed. I love it. Like it? Yeah. All right. So uh, there was two drug companies that were jointly selling a blood cancer drug um, that made the decision not to move forward to change the way that they are um, packaging the 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 pill, which would have caused at least triple of costs for the life saving medicine for some patients. Um, most patients take a three three capsules a day which costs $148,000 most of which is covered by insurance but early evidence suggested that the lower dose could be effective um, and so they were going to change the three times a day to a one a day tablet and the new pills were going to cost $400 a pill or three times as much as a, the pill. other pills would oh have cost my God. So the initial number yep. you cited, just to be clear, was an annual price of one hundred and forty-eight thousand um, dollars. Yeah, which, which is, is what, what it costs, costs now. now. So, and this is a really common thing that pharmaceutical companies do because there's only so much time that they can hold a patent on a medication. So initially, they develop it if it's new, then they're the only ones who can sell it. And after a number of years, which I believe is somewhere in the in the decades, although I'm not sure, then anyone, anyone can, can create the drug. And this happened recently with, um, with lidocaine patches, which have become somewhat popular in athletes and people with chronic pain. And there was one company making them and they were, I don't know, say roughly $7 a patch. The patent expired. They created a non 
prescription version that's like a slightly lower concentration and now you can buy a box of 20 for 10 bucks or so and so i mean those are the types of things that typically help people save money but what the drug companies often do or try to do is somehow repackage or reformulate the drug so that they can i believe so that they can continue the patent which could be like like what changing the dosage making it extended release um and i actually just ran into this with uh, an inhaler I needed. So if you remember, Laura, the great illness for me, my the mystery virus of 20, what was it, late 2017, like the four-month period where I was like, what is going on? So I ended up needing some like inhaled medications, one of which, no joke, with insurance costs $175, which frankly is chump change compared to what people are paying for um, medications for cancer. And I think Medications for cancer and vaccines in developing nations are two places where we see people suffering the most, meaning, like, the unaffordability is the highest, I would say. And that's just, that's my unscientific, you know, anecdotal type of evidence. But that's where I hear about it the most. Yeah. And I don't know what you do because I, it's like, of course, if you're the company, you want to keep the patent, right? Like this is, see, I feel like Laura, this is an issue for you because it's, it's not as much of like a health issue as it is like kind of a social, like economic issue that the companies they're answering to shareholders and they're going to keep cranking at the price and they're going to keep making the drug new because like, that's what benefits them. It's like, and what benefits the pharmaceutical company is in direct conflict with what benefits healthcare consumers. So what do we do? Yeah. Well, also to the um, the there's with generic companies, they're supposed to be able to get so many um, um, prescriptions be mm-hmm. to be able to create the generic versions, and so sometimes they will also slow walk their the ability to send them to their competitors wait so what exactly happens in those cases like give me a give me a hypothetical i mean that's so it essentially for the f fda um they require that they do they have uh comparisons to about five thousand doses and so they won't the company just won't sell Oh. Um, the doses to to the other company, and they will See, cite uh, safety insane. concerns. So, if you guys are listening and you're interested in reading more about this, the Harvard Business Review, which I love and I think the writing is really strong, has this piece that I would recommend called "How Pharma Companies Game the System to Keep Drugs Expensive," um, and it's just it's getting into what Laura's talking about. And if you want to hear a little more, but. I mean, Laura, I just don't get it, and this is one of the things that I'll never understand, and I'm not strong on, like, economic and, like, topics, but is there no way for the government to, like, regulate this, or, like, is there no way to create a system where it's both advantageous to develop a medication and advantageous to make the medication available to people at an affordable price? I mean, I get why those things are at odds, but it kind of seems like this is a losing battle. Yes, you're mm. describing socialist medicine. I feel like uh, there 
now we'll know how many people are listening because there'll just be a rain of, uh, I don't know, grenades launched toward my apartment building. Listen, people, I don't own the building. I just live here. Don't burn it to the ground. Hmm. I don't know what the solution is, but I, I believe the pharmaceutical companies, when they say that R&D is a huge cost, but I don't believe that there's a need to raise the drug like you launch it on the market it costs x however you determine that is not a process that i completely understand but i don't believe that three years later you need to triple the price of it that just seems like greed you know that that seems like something where like a little regulation could could be really like super helpful because um i don't know about you but i don't really think that i should have to pay this thing. I was like, $175? Really? And they were like, yeah, well, there's, for my medication, they were like, there's like 13 varieties of it, but your insurance will only cover three, and we only stock one. And I was just like, of course. And the medication was reformulated last year. So it's like, there was an older one that was, I think, cheaper, and now, guess what? They, like, made it slightly different. And so... It's frustrating because it's not something you can avoid. Like, if they reformulate ketchup tomorrow, I can stop buying ketchup. I can use alternate ketchup. I can, like, make my own ketchup. I cannot make my own pharmaceutical product. And I I feel like... I don't know. It's a textbook. It's a textbook Uh, scene, right? Like, they make a new edition, and I swear they just move a fucking picture, and they're like, it's a new edition. They just, you know, they just move... 10 pages around so that the numbers don't line up anymore. Yeah. And everything's fucked. Like, I'm sure they update things, but like, my history <laughs> book, what the fuck changed about <laughs> about prehistory to 1500? Yeah. What could have possibly have changed that much that we need to keep updating it? And then, to be fair, then you have other people who have textbooks in the 2000s that still still cite Soviet Russia and yeah. you think why isn't this shit updated well so I, guess I don't know I mean I think happy. what we're asking for is like a fair and equitable system for this kind of thing that like at a certain point I, I don't know I mean do we as a society stand to gain if we just keep squeezing people you know like at a certain point the rich get richer and I'm not sure that that benefits everyone as a whole either as much as people want more money like if the 1% is 1 million times more wealthy than the 99%, like, is that even good for the 1%? You know, like, at a certain point, it collapses, right? Yeah, oh, God. See, and that's Robin. the problem of me, like, maybe not knowing as much as I should. It's like, I don't even know that that's how that comes across. But, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the solution is. I think there's, you know... Blah, blah, blah. There's great things about capitalism. There's great things about pharmaceutical companies. I mean, uh, these medications that they develop are miracles for people. Like, they are concretely saving lives in ways that we can measure. But at the same time, when vaccines are not affordable, when the medication cost triples from one year to the next, it's a hard sell for me that that's innovation and not just spectacular greed. Yeah, I agree. I know. I know. Goodness. I'm, jeez. So, 
What would you say, Laura, if we could solve one of the problems that we talked about today? If we're, we're looking at antifungal stuff, we're looking at maternal mortality, we're looking at cancer medic, we're talking like pharmaceuticals. What was the other one? Oh, postpartum depression. Which one? Which one do you think would have mm-hmm. the greatest impact if we could like snap our fingers and solve it? Um, I think if we believed women, that would be a great I don't know, start. though, because are they just going to, like, if we do that, are they just going to, like, menstruate on important documents, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's tough. It's tough. And I think, like, we disbelieve women in ways that aren't even clear to all of us. Like, I think to some extent it trickles down into women themselves, like, that... It's like it's like when racism is so systemic that people who are being discriminated against are also discriminating against others. Like it's so ingrained that we're all doing it and we can't realize it, which is not to like put the burden on people who are experiencing discrimination, but to say that like sometimes we perpetuate it without without even realizing without even realizing it. And that's kind of been I was at this like business leadership kind of uh group today that gets a lot into emotional intelligence and we were talking about vocal presence and the the different vocal inflections and how they can kind of come across and it's just so obvious to me that the things that women were working on were slightly different in my group than the things that that men were working on and and so much of that is how we're socialized to present ourselves how we're socialized to behave and you've probably heard the whole statistic about um, men who interrupt are perceived as knowledgeable and authoritative. Women who interrupt are perceived as rude and um, like not generous or something. So the, the exact same behavior in a man and a woman in a business setting is often viewed very differently. Things like that. Like is where I start to be like, ah, like we're raising kids to behave a certain way and then we're like penalizing them for behaving that way. And it just starts to sometimes feel a little bit like, I don't know, like Machiavellian kind of a thing. Like, can we ever truly extricate ourselves from this, like, this, like, house of cards that we've created? I mean, I hope that we can, but there's certainly, like, a lot of stuff getting in the way. And imagine, like, you and I are talking about women, like, how much worse it is for minority women, for trans women, you know. It's not good. The women, they need your support. Absolutely. Laura, I think that's enough bad patienting for me for one day. I feel like weighed down by the problems of the world. (laughs) A little little bit. A little bit. So, guys, if you want to connect with us, you can email hello at thebadpatient.com. You can visit us at thebadpatient.com. You can listen on Stitcher, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your fine podcast recordings. You can rate, share, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts as well. We'd love it if you would do that. And um, our theme song is by Evan Schaefer. You can listen to his music at soundcloud.com slash Evan Schaefer. So until next time, thanks for listening, and we are Bad Patient. Well, practice makes perfect. Oh,